Hello, before we begin today's episode properly, this is just a content warning to say that the episode is going to contain extensive discussion of rape, sexual assault and graphic sexual violence. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And joining me this week, we have got... Uh, I'm Morgan. I'm one of your normal social review editors. And my name's Eve, and I'm a volunteer with We Can't Consent to This. Cool, which is what we're going to be talking about this week. Excellent. Um, Morgan, do you want to take over from there? Eve, do you fancy telling us um, a little bit about uh, how We consent? We Can't Consent to This got started? Sure um, thing. So I, I claim absolutely no uh, glory in how the campaign was started. It was set up by Fiona McKenzie, mm-hmm. who is actually... Lovely Fiona. Lovely Fiona, who we, you know, adore and respect. Yes. And she set the campaign up after the atrocious killing of Natalie Connolly in 2016, and for those of you who are unaware, Natalie Colony was Connolly rather was killed by her partner John Broadhurst, and he was initially charged with murder, and then actually got GBH with intent, meaning that he only served three years and eight months. And this is despite the fact that he inflicted multiple, really, really like blunt force trauma, shocking injuries. She actually suffered from substantial internal bleeding. Um, you know, and he then successfully claimed... He he committed atrocities on her, so shocking that some of them couldn't be printed in family-friendly newspapers. Like, it was really, really appalling, the scale of violence that he meted out to her. And he actually um, stepped over her dead body, which he left at the bottom of the stairs before going to make breakfast and wash his car, before phoning the police and cheerfully announcing that she's dead as a donut. And yeah, he got three years and eight months. He's going to be coming out soon. And shockingly, since her death in 2016, 13 other women have been killed this way. And by this way, I mean they've been killed during so-called sex games gone wrong, where the men have successfully used this defence, that they were having consensual rough or kinky sex, and it just went wrong, which is obviously shocking. And I can talk a little bit more, if you like, perhaps a bit later on about the scale of this problem and how it's increased. But anyway, so Fiona was, you know, just saw this and felt so aggrieved and so shocked by it. Mm -hmm. And I think there is certainly something I've found when writing to MPs and engaging with MPs on this is that people really are blown away by the scale of violence and Mm -hmm. how this is so clearly... And we get a lot of... um, We get a lot of armchair legal experts on Twitter being like, well, actually, what you're asking for already exists in case law. Um, and sort of pontificating about the niceties of the law. Mm-mm. But we do think this case really does actually show that, like, just because um, the law is in its current state doesn't mean that it necessarily delivers justice. In many instances, the law is, in fact, an ass. So, <laughs> and, this, and if you look at, like, the scale of the scale of violence that she was subjected to, people can't help but be moved by it. Like, mm. this was a really young mother who was, frankly, murdered by her... Mm her millionaire property developer boyfriend. Yes. And he'll walk free, but her daughter will grow up without a parent. And it offends people, and mm. it should. Um, so you've talked a little bit about the law changes. Could you say what uh, We Can't Consent to This has pressed for what it's kind of, what the successes of the campaign have been and uh, what you hope to do in sure the future? Thing. 
But I think Morgan's being very uh, modest in using you because Morgan is also a volunteer if we can't consent to this. Um, Mask off. Yeah, oh my God, reveals. Like it's that meme of um, the astronauts being like, you mean they all want to ban pornography? Always did. Yeah, <laughs> That's the social review. Yeah, that's, that's we do get, um, yeah, anyway, uh, people on Twitter, who cares? So yeah, so Fiona set the campaign up and she has worked since the beginning very closely with Harriet Harman, Labour legend, and mm. Harriet's heart... Um, leader legend lad. Leader legend lad, mother of the house. Mm. Um, she's worked very closely with uh, Rachel and her parliamentary assistant, sorry, Harriet and her parliamentary assistant, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Both of you have been absolutely instrumental in getting this uh, campaign off the ground. And then also working with Mark Garnier, who's a Conservative MP, and he was Natalie's uh, Natalie's local MP. And again, like any uh, right-thinking person, he was just completely appalled by this attack. And so they started to work together. And it was this is what I find so um so I guess like so admirable about Fiona's efforts is mm. like she has an incredibly busy job. And when she heard about the Natalie case, she was so incensed by it, and she started looking around for similar um, instances. Mm. And couldn't find any because CPS don't keep data on this. They don't keep data on women killed this way. And so she started, uh, I think over the Christmas holidays of all times, uh, a couple of years back, going through newspaper archives and finding instances of women who have been killed this way, mm. collating the data and pulling together a picture that showed that this was this was a trend that's like really worryingly on the rise. Mm. And so yeah. she started to work with uh, Mark Garnier and Harriet Harman going through sort of case law and legal precedent to basically say, see how can you stamp out this rough sex defence. Mm. And so I don't want to um, bore all three of the listeners with too much legalese. Yeah. Um, six, six, at least. Six, at least. The six listeners. Yeah, it doesn't count if the six listeners are the Social Review Editorial <laughs> Board. Yeah, <laughs> like every single listener to the Social Review podcast like got a really nice jumper from their mum from M&S for Christmas and they're really yeah. pleased about it and they also secretly like The National. But on a more serious note, um, I thought it was interesting you saying about the increase in the trend. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the other the things that's really good about We Can't Consent to This is, yeah, as you were saying, the collation of data. Mm. And I think one of the more interesting bits of research that have, has turned up is the, oh, what is it, the woman in Wales who does research into the, the harms of strangulation. Helen, uh, Helen Bichard, I believe. Yes, yes, uh, who's done really interesting research into, like, basically strangulation as, as gendered violence, but also the long-term impacts of, the long-term impacts that like kind of persistent strangulation can have. Mm. Um, wasn't it something absolutely horrifying? Like it's one of the highest causes of strokes in women? Yeah, so there's there's some initial research mm. um, that I should get out of my folder immediately, but I don't think I'd be able to talk compellingly whilst I'm rummaging about in the annals of my laptop. Um, but she has been undertaking, and she's a she's an NHS uh, clinical, you know, she's she's a qualified medical professional. Mm-mm. And yeah, she looks at because um, you know how lots of boxers get dementia. Yes, and it's obviously they keep getting from, hit in the fucking head. Getting hit in the fucking head. Yeah, yeah. And like, who knew that was passing? I know who knew. Um, and it transpires that. Um, Unsurprisingly, if you uh, subject women to strangulation and violence and you throttle them mm. and it cuts off the flow of oxygen to the brain, yeah. it massively increases your chances. Um, the evidence suggests that it massively increases your chances not only of death from stroke, but also dementia. Gosh. And she, I remember going through her preliminary research a few months back and there's lots of incredibly troubling instances of 
where women have been attacked and they have been strangled and they're so dazed um, and so like cognitively impaired in the short term mm. that they just return to their assailant's house because, you know... What do you mean? They've, they've been, they're so sort of... Um, They've been strangled so viciously mm. that they become completely disoriented. Um, but anyway, so there's there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it's um, unsurprisingly it's it's really bad for women, and you know it's it's an overwhelmingly agendered crime. And if you look at uh, rates of people who typically when men attack other men, they don't strangle them. Um, mm. As a rule, like men will beat one another to death and things like that, but yes. strangulation is quite uncommon. Whereas when you look at um, you know, women who are killed by their partners are disproportionately more likely to be strangled or throttled to death when you compare it to other homicides, whether that's um, mm. male on male or um, you don't really get female on female homicides as a rule, they're quite mm. unusual. Um, but yeah, but yeah. yes, generally, or like home invasion or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it is, this is something that we are troubled by because it's, it's an increasingly sort of... There's obviously a sort of sexualized component here as well, mm. which I think is why we do sometimes get the very occasional accusation that our secret agenda is to ban both sex and porn, because we have pointed out, whereas lots of other people are quite reluctant to do so, we have pointed out that, you know, due to things like, uh, dare I say it, pornography and the ready access to it, mm. there has been a rise in strangulation as a sort of commonly accepted sexual practice. Mm. And... I think the issue then is that people start to consider this a commonplace sexual practice which makes this defence more feasible. Mm. In the same way that 30 or so years ago, I do feel quite strongly that if you were to go before a court and say, oh, well, Your Honour, I was just doing a bit of light choking, yes. this is common. I'm like, like, I, the, words, the, phrase, the phrase breath play was definitely not in common parlance in, exactly. you know. Exactly. And whereas now it's... It was very interesting, actually. We got flack from uh, the secret barrister who, mm. you know, show yourself, coward. Also <laughs> <laughs> get a hobby. Um, but basically making the point that we all make, which is that they all make, which is that R.V. Brown actually already exists in case law. And I know I said I wouldn't do too much legalese, but R.V. Brown is basically mm. the pre-existing legal precedent that we will now get on the statute as a result of our amendment to the domestic abuse bill, which I'm very mm. happy to unpack and talk about in more detail in a minute. Mm. It's actually mm. like a really shocking bit of case law like law students lose their mind over it because it's all about a sadomasochistic sex dungeon so i guess it's one of the more lively things that you can study while you're doing your law is that the, the one that's in the basement of ping pong yes yes yep um but anyway so um people you know armchair legal experts like to say oh it already exists in case law but the issue is that a lots of legal academics have been campaigning to have it repealed anyway because they mm. think it's old-fashioned and like kink negative and B, it may already exist in case law, but it's not being applied. You know, just mm. because something exists theoretically doesn't yeah. mean that it has a practical application or that it's so been drawn upon and used. Case law and statute are different. Statute, yeah. I believe, case law is like a pre, from my rudimentary understanding, is that mm. case law is a sort of um, uncodified body of legal precedents yes. that exist and are established. And then if something is on the statute, it it's is like an actual law. It's an actual law that's been mm. ping-ponged through the House of Commons and the House of Lords yes. and you know, then gets signed off. And so I guess the closest parallel could be the difference between a codified and an uncodified constitution. Okay. okay. And as, you know, fucking losers within A level politics A level well no An A level politics. <laughs> an A level politics A level, it's been a very long day. Um sure. there are of course um 
the law is a lot more straightforward if mm. rigid when you have a codified constitution. Yeah. Um, so there's none of these like yeah w- the wiggle the wiggle room the for wiggle... the awful rough sex defence basically. Exactly. And so the point I was making in a slightly long-handed way is that the secret barrister recently hosted a blog on his website from another um, legal academic, mm. basically making the case for a more kink positive uh, application of the law and saying that the Overton window on sexual violence and common sexual practice People has like... shifted. And so the law should just move accordingly. <laughs> come, pick, come pick up your boyfriend, he's talking about the Overton window again. Yeah, exactly. It's like, come and collect your man. He's yeah. saying that sexual violence against women is so common, we should just accept it as a fact of life and update mm. the law accordingly as if um you know as if like people were as if like the law should be the servant of like um increasingly unco- like horrific moral norms rather than the other way round <laughs> well we're going real Mary Whitehouse territory today aren't we yeah perhaps yeah. um but anyway it's, it's, none of none of you have any morality me addressing the social <laughs> review listenership yeah but even even if even if they make that argument um that it should be, you know, from more kink positive, as it were, interpretation of the law. There's a massive difference, as I'm sure we all know, between like the sort of uh, kink side of it and like what that entails and actually strangling someone and actually pretty much with intent to kill. Like like the, those, those activities just in terms of like, I mean, I, I don't want to get too graphic and detailed, of course, but those activities those incidents are not actually i i don't think they're necessarily even comparable so i d- i mean it's it's just really frustrating when i you know when people like the secret barrister make that kind of argument because it's like well it's just it's just wrong simply yeah, wrong it's simply wrong no i do the kink thing is interesting because we haven't actually had that much pushback as a campaign from um, the the kink community, if you yeah, the that. actual BDSM yeah, community. Yeah, the actual BDSM community. And one of the um, one of our we've done a lot of work with um, Grazia were absolutely mm. amazing on the practical campaigning side of things. Mm. Um, we worked with them to pull a petition together um, because after the tragic death of Grace Mullane, who mm. was murdered by her Tinder date in New Zealand, and again he used the uh, sex game gone wrong, the rough sex defence. Um, we worked with them to pull together a petition that got like over the 15,000 signatories. And from my understanding, actually, one of the editors at Grazia, who's been like full throttle behind this campaign, has spoken herself about the fact that she is um, into BDSM, mm. I think. I think it's like, I'm pretty sure I'm not slandering this woman, I think it's like yeah, literally it's in her Twitter bio. Yeah, and this is the mm. thing, a lot of people who do and I'm not here to offer my, like, tepid takes on BDSM, but, like, yeah. overwhelmingly, like, people who've got in touch with us who are uh, practice BDSM practices mm. are completely appalled by this. Basically, no instances of people in the actual BDSM community turning yeah. up with these appalling injuries or turning up dead. Yeah. And I'm sure lots of people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, under-reporting or, you know, mm. there's some kind of a murder within that community. I mean, honestly, mm. how would I know? But irrespective of what's going on there, we're not looking to demonise or criminalise other people's sex lives. But That comes later. Yeah, that comes later. Um, but the issue here is that people are using the BDSM community or BDSM practices as a fig leaf, if you like, for effectively yeah. um, wounding, maiming, attacking and murdering women. I mean, yeah. and it, is, it isn't just strangulation. Like, we have a really, really shocking... There was a really shocking death in 2016 of a 21-year-old called Laura Hootson, 
and she had her throat cut by a man um, during, again, during a so-called sex game gone wrong, during, like, knife play. Um, I don't know where this ridiculous idea came from that you can you can sanitise, like, anything by just sticking the sticking play on the end but whatever yeah um and she had her throat cut by a man who was then sentenced to six years for gross grossly negligent manslaughter really really and this is why it's so important that we establish the principles of rv brown on the Mm -hmm. statute and the principles of rv brown are effectively that no one can consent to non-trifling injury during Mm. sex yeah and again like irrespective of whether or not you you think that you know it already exists in law and it just needs to be re-enshrined or it doesn't need to be re-enshrined. At present, judges and juries aren't recognising that. They aren't mm. recognising that no one can meaningfully consent to murder or to gross injury. Yeah. And I think the sort of the useful theoretical test for this is to see if this would hold up in any other circumstances. You know, if you were like a member of, say, a gardening club or an allotment, the idea that if you then went and bludgeoned someone to death with, you know, a trowel, and we say that they they consented to this as part of like our gardening practice or something it's it's just it becomes completely ludicrous but it seems that when big uh, amnesia investment sex is not a sandwich uh, vibes literally sex is not a sandwich and um it seems to i find it like quite baffling that people suddenly start espousing this like insane (laughs) libertarianism yeah, um, I've, I've comes to this. If you're a member of the kind of non-libertarian left, and like whether or not you think that's a contradiction in terms, another discussion. Um, like we believe in you know mat- a, a material world and in fixing fixing problems with sort of material fixes. Like you know, mm. this isn't the mo- like we don't believe in the marketplace of ideas. We believe in in you know seeing patterns, in recognizing what makes what makes things the way they are, and you know things like shit housing shit wages whatever we're not like oh maybe if you just thought about it differently you'd have a better time like no it's about it's about changing material practice and i find it interesting that there is any pushback to to this kind of legislation around um the rough sex defense because it it's the same principle i think it's you know if you believe that you see you see a social ill and you legislate you legislate in a material way to stop it Mm -hmm. um but i mean that's I don't think I've expressed that quite as well as I would have liked to, but that's a, my basic opinion. But anyway, um, I have a now. I now have a question. Um, so we can't consent. This has been, I think, reasonably successful. You could say as a lobbying group. I mean, the it's, change in the law. I'd say that's quite successful. Yeah, I would say that's quite successful. Um, and you know, it's gotten quite a lot of pickup. It's gotten like cross party engagement, good amount of media coverage. What would you say has made it a six? Like, what what are the characteristics of a successful campaign? And I mean, aside from the fact that I mean, we obviously both think, maybe the listeners do or not, that it's it's a righteous campaign, and therefore, like, it's the inherent moral clarity of it shines through. But mm, I think probably uh, with a sort of campaign's hat on, mm-hmm. I would say there's three things, which is simplicity of ask and message. Mm-hmm. So although we have lots of things that we we also want in addition to this so you know we want the crown prosecution service to keep data on women being killed this way yeah we would like strangulation to be made a specific offense rather than just falling under the Part um, of, yeah. yeah falling under the umbrella of assault because that results in under prosecution whereas in new zealand where strangulation is a specific offense it's resulted in a rocketing increase in prosecution and conviction rates Um, So we've got loads of other stuff like within that sort of ballpark that we would like. 
but I think when the campaign was first starting out, and this it really was a one-woman operation. It was like Fiona mm. with like a bit of help from Lou, mm. um, and she did obviously like work with other women's organisations and things like that. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, it really was Fiona who drove all of this. And I think it was the clarity and simplicity of the ask, mm. which I think is particularly important when you are asking for uh, legal change yes. and you're asking for something around like. If you start saying, oh, we want to have a pre-existing legal precedent enshrined on the statute, people are just like, oh my God, fuck me, you're boring. I don't understand this. What are you on about? Yeah. Whereas if you say to people, at the moment, men are killing women and they're getting away with it and they're using the rough sex defence mm. or um, the other expression that used to get bandied around a lot was the Fifty Shades defence. And that's immediately very memorable. And yes. we did get a lot of headlines saying Fifty Shades defence, you know, rough sex defence. Yeah. And it just, it lodges itself in people's sort of uh, collective consciousness quite easily. And mm -hmm. people, people immediately grasp it. It's very self-explanatory. Men are killing women. They're saying that they consented to it during rough sex. They're getting away with it. This mm -hmm. is wrong. It's a very simple, like, three-part argument. Yeah. So I think that's probably part of, a big part of the success. I'd say the second part is just, Obviously, well, the primary part is just like Fiona's incredible tenacity and forcefulness mm. and how how diligent and how thorough and how, I mean, she's, um, I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, she's an actress, she's very like numbers focused, she's mm. done a fantastic job of putting together very compelling briefings, looking at the statistical, in like the um, percentage increase in this, how and why this trend has rocketed and putting it in very sort of clear, hard digestible data-centric ways mm. so i think i go simplicity of message fearless pushiness and then i would also say um just like good good comms work good like cross-party collaboration as well i know that like <laughs> everyone vomits when they hear cross-party collaboration or hands across the aisle yeah. but it really has been a cross-party effort mm. um like Mark Garnier and Harriet Harman have both been absolutely amazing. Mm. And then when I started helping with the campaign, I said to Fiona, let's, you know, let's email every MP mm. um, and let's talk to them about the domestic abuse bill and, you know, just urging them to vote for it, urging them to get mm. involved. Also, we're happy to brief them. And one of the first MPs who got back to us was Laura Farris, who's a relatively new Conservative MP for Newbury. She's a former barrister. Mm. And so Fiona and I spoke to her on the phone. And she just immediately was like so switched on, so engaged, so committed, immediately asking for briefings. She was taping questions within in the house within mm. a week or so. And she asked, she, it's really, I mean, like maybe put a link in the show notes. She, mm. at Prime Minister's Question Time, asked a question saying, you know, will yes. the Prime Minister commit to ending the rough sex defence? Mm. She's made incredibly spirited and moving interventions in the house. Mm. Um, you know, saying these women's names and speaking about them and again as a result of our just sort of constantly like sending pig head I mean I know you complain more and you're like I've got another group campaign mail from we can't consent to this I don't bitch about generic... we can consent to this I bitch about in their grave but like no, I'm glad they're in their grave they're so annoying but we would go around you basically pull together a very a briefing that pulls together the most compelling stats mm. and we would send MPs briefings setting out women who had been killed in their areas mm. and as a result of this we got because of that personalised approach we did get a lot of MPs writing back to us and again um, you know Tory and the MPs from all political parties writing back to us saying this is absolutely appalling and so as a result when the DA bill did go in front of the house there are a number of really, really, really moving interventions from mm. male and female MPs from all different parties. Mm. And I mean, I remember when the DA bill was going through the House last, I remember like 
texting and emailing with Laura Farris like really at like 10.30 at night and she was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just nobbling another male conservative into backing this. And in the end, we got like over 80 signatories from six different parties mm. signed up to our amendment. And I do, so yeah, I would say like cross-party working, um, just like pig-headedness and manpower and simplicity of message, I would say, is what has made it a good campaign. Mm. And fantastic media partners, obviously. Yes, such as the yeah. social review. <laughs> the social review, first and foremost. Um, and then, like, Grazia. And we did a bit of work with the BBC, actually, mm. into um, uh, a third of women under 40 having experienced sexual violence, yes. such as kicking, okay. spitting, uh, choking during yeah, sex. Yeah, sexual. So, yeah. yeah. And again, like, I do think the media thing is, I think this is something that the left are guilty of, like a sort of ideological purity. But I remember when Fiona sent a sort of text saying, um, you know, we've got, we're going to be featured in a, a long read in the sun about about mm. the rough sex defence. And they've got an interview with Natalie Connolly's dad. And I remember, I remember reading it and just thinking like, this is in the sun, this is going to, this will go through the house. Like the sun is, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the barometer of public opinion, especially if you're the conservative mm. party. And so I think um, not being sort of prissy and only wanting mm. to work with, the Guardian and you know being willing to to work with um people from you know media mm. partners of all stripes has been yeah. has been really fantastic and it's meant we've got a wider audience yeah what do you think are the next steps going to be for the campaign um so with the rough sex defense has it been legislated against already or has it just been committed to being legislated against just to clarify in what respect committed to being the oh sorry so like do you mean the rough sex defence? Is it going to be made specifically illegal or yes? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think I guess we kind of touched on this earlier. Like at present, mm. um, and this is something all of our sort of blokes uh, uh, on Twitter like to say, which is that it's already mm. illegal to kill sure, someone during yes, sex. Yeah. Um, and our argument, we don't contest that. Like it's obviously illegal to kill people. Mm. But, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm a bad guy. Yeah. Our issue, haha Morgan, our issue is that Sorry. at present, 45% of men who do kill women during sex games mm. gone wrong don't get tried for murder. They get a lesser mm. sentence. So whether that's manslaughter or something like that. And so R.V. Brown, okay, let's let's do the background of R.V. Brown. R.V. Brown is basically sure. um, a group of uh, men were meeting for in the 90s for sadomasochistic uh, group sex. And... Mm. It's really like quite uh, eye-opening stuff. Um, so you might, you know, by all means, look it up in your spare time. I think that mm. penises were being nailed to benches and things like that. Hopefully not public benches. No. Um, and anyway, so there was, uh, I believe, an assault case, and mm. basically the legal verdict was that a person cannot consent to that degree of bodily harm. Yeah, to any um, non-trifling injuries. Mm. So you know, that's mm. like a broken bone or. Um, you know, serious lasting injury mm. and so whilst this does already exist as a legal precedent it's not enforced and so mm. we men who then go in front of um in front of a judge and say i i did kill her but she consented to it it was as a result of something that she asked for and she consented to mm. and that's mm. considered to be a legitimate legal defense mm. whereas enshrining the principles of rv brown on the statute would mm. effectively cut through that and say mm. the person legally cannot consent to this mm. um so in that sense it will abolish the defense so we still the bill still needs to go through the house of lords um mm. 
but I'm hardly um, anticipating any uh, Doddery old Tory backbenchers rising and saying absolutely not. Absolutely. Keep this sick filth in circulation. And then after this, we have been having discussions about sort of next steps. And mm. my understanding is that our next thing to go after is non-fatal strangulation. So again, that's making strangulation a specific offence because mm -hmm. as has been shown in New Zealand, if you make it a specific offence rather than keeping it under the umbrella of assault, it results in a higher conviction rate. So that's something that we obviously want. And then in addition to this, we'd like to see the Crown Prosecution Service actually keep data on this because mm. it's frankly insane that it falls upon a group of volunteers to um, you know, record and take notes and identify this worrying rise in a highly sexualized um, form of assault and killing, frankly. Mm. And I think there's other... I understand that sort of Fiona has other things that she's chewing over. Um, we do, mm. we do have the occasional chat about like, oh god, do we have to talk about porn? What do we do? Um, but it's, mm. I think for now, non-fatal strangulation mm. and uh, the CPS is quite enough to be getting on with. Yes, definitely. Keeping with that idea of what you said of simplicity of message and specific asks. Completely. I think the thing is with the CPS as well is that's perhaps a slightly more difficult ask. Because again, there's, and I think you probably will have read about this in the news recently, CPS came under fire because their, um, oh my goodness, their prosecution guidelines around rape have, um, they got a lot of flack quite recently because a lot of women are saying that like the, you know, the, they, they've been sort of systemically uh, disbelieved yeah. by the Crown Prosecution Service or they feel like- I know that conviction rates are absolutely plummeting. Conviction rates are absolutely plummeting. And yeah, people are yeah. saying that this is- yeah, people are saying this is because um, the prosecution guidelines are just too, like, the burden of proof is too high, you know. There was, mm. there was an instance, I believe, where a woman was, I remember reading The Guardian, a woman was raped at knife point, I think by a cash point, you know, really, really terrifying. An instance mm. where you clearly think, oh my god, I'm going to die. Yeah, um, mm. the most obvious and public and... Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly, sure. and the court found that they didn't think it was a, a legitimately threatening situation or something like that, like... And so mm. it's it's difficult because if you start saying, you know, sentencing guidelines to people, people switch off because they're like, oh, God, dry, don't really understand it. Mm. But it is it is important. And so we're having a think about um, how do you how do you talk compellingly about a slightly boring bureaucratic change that could result in a higher conviction rate? Mm. Mm. And again, obviously, we do talk to, um, you know, women's groups and things like that and see how and where we can help and support them. But again, I guess going back to the simplicity of message, it's it's a lot easier when you have a couple of core targeted asks. Mm. Um, but yeah, Fiona really is the brains behind the whole operation. Mm. Um, and I defer yeah. endlessly to her. Yeah. <laughs> the domestic abuse bill is such an interesting piece of legislation, though, if you... I don't know, because in some ways it's enormously positive, and obviously I think these things are, that we've discussed are enormously positive. But also, so many people, you know, talking to so many people who work in the domestic violence, the domestic violence sector, you know, in yeah. domestic violence prevention, mm. um, say that, you know, the legal changes are very positive, but there's absolutely fuck all funding for like refuges, there's absolutely fuck all materi yeah. material backup, yeah. which I think yeah. is basically kind of like a very, I don't know, it's very Theresa May, isn't it? Like, it's yeah. like. Well, she spoke so compellingly in mm. favour of the domestic abuse bill, but then yeah. she oversaw slashing funding for. Refuges. Pretty much everything yeah. that you can think of that would materially stop us. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's yeah, Tories in it, but... It's, yeah. it's really yeah. difficult because it's... Um, yeah, there's... Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's it's difficult. I agree with you, and I think mm-hmm. that it's important to it's important to have legal change. Um, but I completely agree with you that material change, like i.e., funding for women's services, mm-hmm. is obviously also vitally vitally yeah. important. Like changes to housing, mm-hmm. yeah, completely. And then there's also cultural change because ultimately politics does live downstream from culture, mm. and. I think one of the issues that we and our again our amazing press officer Louise has been doing lots on this and speaking to the press about this. Um, mm. But there's the sort of increasing normalisation of sexual violence among mm. young women, and we've worked with we work with the Times on a couple of op-eds around this on like the phenomenon of like young women on Instagram being oh God I sound so fucking old <laughs> Zoomers on Instagram yes. and TikTok yes um yeah they being... have this thing called TikTok TikTok God I sound like I read the Tatler yeah I don't read the Tatler the Tatler is it the Tatler is it the Tatler I don't know I don't read it Tatler anyway um so I think it's just Tatler so the young are on the TikTok yeah and yeah just like. Um, there's apparently this challenge uh, based. Uh, it's based on Netflix had this drama. It was that weird Polish film that was just 365 like 365 days, and it's where it was just, just like how yes. to be horrible yeah. to women for a prolonged period yeah. of time. Yeah, and he's just like, mm, how to show a woman you care? Just take her hostage for a year. And yeah. Like, no. Anyway, and so but, oh, a, I think I saw some of this in the yeah, TikTok. Completely. And so there's the a TikTok, TikTok craze on the, the TikTok. On the TikTok. Of, of um and again because people who use tiktok are overwhelmingly zoomers um Mm -hmm. and you know there's the 365 days challenge where it's young women showing off injuries that they've sustained during uh rough sex and violent sex and i'm sure we've all like gone on instagram and seen people you know doing like choke me daddy memes and Mm. things like that and it's it's increasingly the the normalization of rough sex which Mm. historically used to be like you know, a niche practice. Yeah. Mm. Now, because of and in being a niche practice, a practice that had much more sort of expertise uh, around expertise it. around Completely. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As you see in the BDSM community. Exactly, where they do, you know, from my understanding, do that utmost to practice um, safe words and prioritizing mm. safety and so on. And again, like mm-hmm. we get into a lot of um, we get into a lot of beef on the internet because I mean, know, everyone's beefing these days. Because <sighs> everyone's locked in their homes. Um, yes. But we, our Queen Laura Farris, recently got into beef with, uh, I believe, Ask Ask Men or like Men's Health dot com or something because they mm. released an article on how to practice breath play safely. Oh, I think it was, which, was it GQ? I yeah, feel like whoever it was, I'm going to be yeah, slagging them off. It was, but... like a, it was like a trashy Blake's pamphlet. Like, yeah. I, mean, I just think, what business do men have having their own magazines, you know? What are None. they talking about? What, what, can, what can they possibly they don't have? They, they don't have inner lives. I just, no, as far as I'm concerned, like, men are interested in sport, seeing their mates, like, these are all good and laudable things. England football team. Yeah, they might be allowed, like, a passing interest in fashion, but yeah. A whole in, uh, you know, they, they they have newspapers. We all have sex-neutral newspapers, and that's fine. Yeah, so they don't um, need they don't need their own. Agreed, agreed. Yeah. The men's corner. Well, having um having beef on the internet because they release this, and again we have all this research from uh from Helen hmm. Helen Bishard, uh, proving that you you cannot safely strangle someone. No. If you apply pro- you can apply prolonged pressure to someone's neck for as little as like eight seconds and do untold damage to them and their airways. Like mm. there is no safe way to strangle someone in the same way that yeah. there is no safe way to clobber someone about the head with a chair. Um, mm. And so we do, mm. yeah, this is this is the difficult thing is like changing the law is, 
you can change the law by sending enough emails and making a compelling yeah. enough argument. And but also, let's be real, like, these, like, kind of Tory MPs from the home counties, who I I agree with very solidly on this, this position, but are, this position? This, this position. This position. Yeah. But who are, like, let's be real, basically being like, oof, that's, don't like the sound of that. Yeah. You know, it's very sort of, you know, like neo, like Labour friends of neo-prude and also Tory friends of being a big neo-prude, which obviously, yeah. like... We're into. We're into, but, like, it's... You know, Tory MPs from home counties aren't, a, aren't exactly at the forefront of culture, completely. let alone sexual culture. Good grief, I hope not. Yeah, you have a captive audience there because it's it's broadly it's not morally shocking to anyone um, over the age of thirty, basically. Whereas then, if you do have a generation of young people who've grown up with uh, ready access to pornography, and I think this is like, and this is like my view. This is not we can't consent to this view, but. <sighs> All views my own, yeah. not those of my employer. All bad views my own. Yeah. Um, but I think you'd have to be quite willfully naive to pretend that giving young people during their sexually formative years ready wall-to-wall access to really extreme pornography mm. where violence is really common, it's the norm, slapping, spitting, yeah. choking, I mean, etc. Fifty Shades of Grey being, you know, the cultural behemoth that it is should, like, depressingly tell you. Yeah, but and even that's comparatively, comparatively tame. Comparatively, it's, it's so like... tame. Yeah, I remember yeah. Catherine and I watching it whilst eating a fish finger sandwich when we were undergrads and just being like, oh, this is, like, this is, you know, very unremarkable. I remember you and me and Molly watched, like, the first, like, half an hour of it, and I was like, I've turned this off, it's oh. smut and filth, and also I want to go to the pub. And also the primary smut and filth in that film is, like, his inordinate wealth. That's the I mean, yeah, it's more it's more wealth pornography than, like, than pornography like, pornography. Yeah, I mean, it's both, but... Yeah, whereas, like, with pornography pornography, like, I'm yeah. sorry, like, I... it's so disingenuous to pretend that, you know, giving young people constant access to, like, super extreme porn during their sexually formative years, before they've even necessarily uh, had romantic or intimate contact with, like, their peers, Mm. that it isn't going to shape their sexual compass in, like, a huge and irrevocable way. Mm. And, yeah, I like, we have completely shoddy sex education in schools. There's a whole sort of host of cultural influences Mm. that have basically Mm. converged and normalised a lot of sex practices it used to be, God, I do sound very Mary Whitehouse. Sex you practices. do, sex practices. I just say, like, yes. you know, I'm, as a, anyway. Um, but <laughs> I, nonetheless, like, it's it's willfully naive to pretend that, you know, this confluence of, in, like, influences isn't mm-hmm. going to obviously shape how young people view yeah. sex and what they consider to be sexually normal. Yeah. And mm. it's, it's thrust these practices that, like, 20 to 30 years ago would have been considered relatively niche right into the mainstream. Like, this is something mm. that, we often get we get a lot of emails from young women and increasingly now from older women as well young women saying i just don't know how to deal with this like my boyfriend wants to do x y and z all the guys my age think it's completely normal mm. and then we also get emails from older women saying oh you know i've recently come out of a long term relationship or i've recently been divorced and suddenly all of the men my age are into these into these sexual practices that i find really really upsetting mm. i don't like and like mm. weren't a thing you know when yeah. i was last single uh 20 to 30 years ago mm. Mm. and i think really this is like again this is like this is not do you i think do you want to inhabit a sexual landscape where people are free to make authentic choices about what they're interested in sexually or do you want to inhabit a sexual landscape where 
violence has become so normalized that it's it's almost taken for granted and it's ubiquitous because like if we're going to go for the like i'm a libertarian socialist argument i would like to i would like to inhabit a sexual landscape where people actually have that choice Mm. and where you know those those decisions about sexual tastes aren't effectively made for them by pornography yes Mm. can't believe i'm a neoliberal now i can't believe you're in it yeah welcome to the marketplace of ideas eve free of the market free of the women (laughs) yeah i i I had two things to say firstly just on the on the point a while back about um cutting a funding to women's refuges um yeah my uh my late grandmother ran a women's refuge for um victims of domestic violence so it's definitely very acute in that sense and it's very yeah it's, it's it's something which i'd always grown up being exposed to the sort of realities of it so even if I wasn't sort of um, necessarily involved in it. But yeah, it's it's definitely got worse after 2010. Um, and the other point on what we were just talking about with um, culture and pornography and specifically the film, 365 Days. So I, th- I think this taps into a sort of broader, almost, I mean, this is a really big discussion, but particularly with this sort of thing, it is a sense of artistic responsibility. Um so as a as as like a filmmaker and writer myself, I, something I've been thinking a lot about recently is that, and I, and I think the the whole of the creative industries have with regards to how um, people and subject matters get represented on screen um, is being aware and critical of what you are writing about um, and the tropes which you are potentially perpetuating and specifically with something like 365 days why why you're telling that story um and maybe you can come up with a really compelling argument which has nothing to do with um perpetuating um you know domestic violence on screen um but it's so important that artists um even if they are making you know schlocky pseudo horror films for netflix are very self-critical with what is going into their art and what the potential impacts could be um and i think obviously this is really difficult it's almost impossible to legislate against and it taps in what you were saying earlier Eve, about the need for sort of trickle down culture change but this this strikes me as 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 an area in which people who make art and make films and make tv shows and write plays and books and so forth do need to think more carefully about well what is potent what are the potential long-term impacts of what i'm putting out there in the world if it ends up being successful and seen by a lot of people and that then gets back to porn mm. but i suppose i i agree with you but i also think that that's so much by the time you get to the the, the level of people who are making kind of commercially successful films sure. or whatever you're already so already so much has had to happen and so much has had to percolate through different different forms of culture for sure. that and so i think like we see i'm very pleased that i've seen the, the increasing kind of i think people copping on to just how like truly appalling Pornhub is yeah, um but also like Pornhub's been existing being truly appalling for all these years as like you know the internet most visited site or whatever i'm not sure you know but like I suppose people are, yeah, I don't know. People are always going to watch porn, but... I think it's difficult as well, because I guess with Netflix and with that 365 Days film, obviously Netflix has such a sort of 
sophisticated algorithmic grasp of yes. what people like and what people yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. It's like and the so- weird YouTube algorithms that basically make it, make what people's like internet subconsciousness wants. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, even like with Netflix, you know, if something's on there. Um, produced by Netflix it's not you know let's take a punt on this like plucky young filmmaker it's like you know the the algorithm suggests that there is an appetite in something that broadly fits into this bracket mm. um, so which does suggest that you know in making this film it is speaking to uh, you know recognizing a set recognizing of... that people people are interested in or want this content and I think to that I would probably say and maybe this is me and my like endless naivety but I remember when 50 shades of gray came out and you've got a lot of sort of, um, you know, uh, hat-tipping libertarians suddenly being like, mm, this proves what we have always instinctively known to be true, which is yeah. that women just absolutely love sexual violence and getting clattered by rich blokes. To which I would probably just say, and again, like, I was in, like, oh, God, like, sixth form or secondary school when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, when it really, like, hit the mainstream. Mm. Um, mm. And to which I would probably say, like, not that I was, like, you know, avidly reading Mills and Boone, like, obviously not, but I would say that, I think Fifty Shades of Grey was such a success, not because it was BDSM, but just because there was probably no uh, sexy books out there for women. Very, you know? yeah, yeah, Apart when you're like, trying to think of... I remember, like, everyone at school, like, fighting over a copy of Jilly Cooper's Riders, because there was, like, shagging in there it. There was, like, one scene in, like, one of the Maori Blackmen, one of the... Nor- the Noughts and Crosses oh, ones yeah, had, like, she a has few... A, she has a baby in Noughts and Crosses, doesn't she? So... Lewd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, obviously, yeah, there's a sex scene. No, but there's quite a few, I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. But yeah, but there's so few, like, for, for, I suppose, like, teenage girls, like, are we really deriding the state of, the state of, like, women's erotic literature? I believe we are. <laughs> I, I legitimately do actually believe that if... If there was if, better erotica... If, if Riders had got a Big Bucks re-release in, like, the late noughties, it would have completely supplanted Fifty Shades of Grey. No one would have been interested in Fifty Shades of Grey, because everyone would have been, like wow, this is just like 400 pages of jodhpur-clad bonk-buster action. Um, and, you know, from my understanding, I've not read it myself, but I understand that Riders is, is quite a raunchy and rollicking read. And I think women would have been I mean, too taken with that to even look twice at Fifty Shades of Grey. I, think I suppose Fifty Shades of Grey is also interesting because it was lit, like, it's obviously it's famously a Twilight um, fanfic. fanfic. And, like, Twilight is also famously sexless. Like, yeah. Twilight is, yeah. like, weird Mormon propaganda. Completely. And so Based maybe... 50, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, and, like, maybe mm. Fifty Shades of Grey is, like, I don't know, the sort of, like, terrible, like, sex cousin of, like, the popularity of Twilight, if you know yeah. what I mean? It's just, like, people were so... People like Twilight... Is. Pardon? The id. I the id, yeah. It's like the yeah. id. Yeah. yeah, it's like people love Twilight so much, but like it's also just like cripplingly sexless. Like, yeah. mm. And it's it's like, um, you know, if you don't have the imagination to fill in the gaps in Twilight, like, mm. well, lucky old you, because Fifty Shades of Grey has done it for you. Yeah. And irrespective of whether or not you like all the gimping, there's enough shagging to keep you ticking over. And also like, like capitalism be wild like yeah. with, like women just want to marry a rich man who can't read yeah can he read who knows yeah but yeah like ultimately culture is um <laughs> often this is really it's, it's i kind of feel like it's analogous actually to like people's attitudes to being gay like the law prohibiting anti-gay discrimination moved a lot faster than people's attitudes 
Like mm. I actually, I recall in the early noughties, and I don't know why I recall this, mm. I remember reading one of my mum's vogues in the early noughties, and it was a progressive columnist saying, you know, I'm, I consider myself to be very liberal, I'm very progressive, I have a lot of gay friends, but I'm just really uncomfortable with the idea of gay men adopting, okay? And I just don't like the idea of lesbians adopting either, and it makes me feel kind of ill. <laughs> Which is like, you know, within our lifetime, it would have been, what, like 15, 17 years ago? Yeah. Um, despite the fact that obviously like uh, homosexuality has been legal for years and years and years mm. and yeah I do just think sometimes uh, the law changes faster than people's attitudes do because mm. again as mm. discussed earlier law is easy it's law, binary yeah exactly well, or even when it's not and it's mm. open to interpretation you know it's pink, mm. plank, plonk change the legal instrument mm. bit of back and forth with the House of Lords and the House of Commons whereas like people's attitudes like you say Jasper they take a long time to sort of percolate and culture yeah. is like the cumulative effect of as you say um art film media pornography um slang know. social discourse what people talk about in the pub what yeah. people look at on the internet like Completely. and that's why it's so hard to actually i um, you know when you get like the YouGov survey through and it's like this is what britain thinks of this and i know morgan you'll be thinking of in the the brexit film where dominic cummings played by benedict cumberbatch to britain, yes. flings himself on the floor and puts his ear to the ground and is like i'm listening to britain yeah and the thing is i feel like if you Very were to erotic. yeah if you were to try and listen to britain um there's no one monolithic voice you know no. um people doing the 365 days challenge on uh the tiktok will have a radically different view to people announcing their weddings in the tower exactly and it's just like there's um but nonetheless you can amid this like morass of different cultural values and events you can identify emergent trends mm. Mm. and i think one thing that fiona's amazing research has demonstrated is that the trend of women being killed by men during mm. so-called sex games gone wrong is on the rise the amount of women being subjected to unwanted sexual violence and again i'm not talking about consensual kink i'm talking about women being slapped and punched and strangled and spat on Mm. during what should otherwise be completely normal sexual encounters that's on the rise and yeah i think it's um i don't think i'm being presumptuous to say that porn does play a role in this and i think that's why it's important to have open channels of conversation around this sort of thing yeah but hopefully soon we'll be able to just ban sex wholesale Oh, I can't wait. Do you know what? It's just to close on a sort of an anecdote. We did have like an, an in-joke within We Can't Consent to This a while ago. And we actually, we polled on Twitter and we're like, would you guys like merch that says this? And obviously loads of very nice middle-aged women who work in the anti-domestic violence sector came back and were like, can you all stop being frivolous? But we kind of <laughs> joked that we were like, maybe we should do hats with Make Shagging Great Again on it. Because... Mm. Ultimately, um, this is, and not to trivialise, you know, the, the, sh- the shocking, ultimately, like, we're all involved in this campaign because we don't want women to be killed during sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but the flip side of this is, like, stuff does need to be done to sort of detoxify our sexual culture. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not normal to expect... To be like, oh... Women I... of all ages, but especially young women, to just take extreme sexual violence mm. as part of the course of, like... Mm. their sex lives or even like minor sexual minor non-consensual sex violence like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't have to be at the extreme end of it it's just like oh. completely and it does all, yeah it does all exist on a continuum like mm. you can care about you can care about minor sexual infractions in people's in people's sex lives yeah and like having sex yeah <laughs> morgan behave um and sorry i'll um, stop doing this bit yeah. now but anyway, so I guess I guess that's what we're getting at. Yeah. I think we're, we're really delighted with all of the work that's been done on the DA yeah. bill. 
and up next uh, strangulation and data collection and uh, then finally as Morgan said banning sex completely can't wait and the episode draws to a close thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to Eve for coming on and chatting to Morgan and I about We Can't Consent to This and the fantastic work that they do uh, go check them out at We Can't Consent to This on social media and their website We Can't Consent to This dot UK uh, where they have listed so many stories of women who have been killed at the hands of their partners um, and on their Twitter as well you can find those aforementioned uh, interventions in the house by um mps like laura farris um you know very powerful moving speeches um would really recommend you go give those a watch as i've been saying in the past couple of weeks we are running a listeners consultation uh, for you guys to give your say on what you think of the podcast what you think could be improved or that sort of thing uh, there will be a link in the show notes uh, and you can just go copy paste that into your browser and fill it out it'll just take a couple of minutes and it's completely anonymous uh really appreciate the responses we've got so far some really Uh, interesting thoughts so thank you so much to everyone who's filled that out already otherwise thanks so much and you will hear us again next week thanks again goodbye the national and this like actually came up recently in the pub um, yeah but that's what i get for like fraternizing occasionally with zoomers i suppose yeah no no the national the national are for old people are they? pete really likes them they're like for kind of like dads in their 30s who i don't know don't quite wear boot cut jeans but like they're not far off on the cusp on the cusp of, on the on the boot cut cusp boot cusp the boot cusp with who, any- who are the national Oh, you Zoomer, Jasper. but they're like an, a, a, a band. They're a like band. A, a, an old dad rock band. Um, oh, and then they're like... I, I Actually, I don't know why I'm shit-talking the National. Like, I listen to them. I obviously only ever listen to the, the Front Bottoms. Um, you listen to The Strokes a lot. We did, I also listen to The Strokes. We did listen to that Strokes album twice consecutively a few weekends back. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, but The National, the guy from The National has just produced Taylor Swift's new album in a real crossover <gasps> event, in a real cultural crossover. Right. What a crossover episode, as uh, Mr. Peanut Butter might say. I feel like we're straying. I feel like we are straying from... The this, is, this is going to be like the end bit. It's going to be the post-credit scene. Yeah, post-credit scene. Oh, um, like, bring back the national. No, I'm shit talking the national. Okay, like sure. send the national away again. <laughs>